I've never done lost and found at the beginning of a sermon, but the Salty Dog Cafe hat. Anybody? Oh, is this Jerry Shannon's? Okay, well, we'll, we'll get that to him, and we'll think of Jerry and just put this right over, right over there uh, today. Uh, one other uh, brief uh, announcement. We are, uh, you already heard the announcement. We're going to be gathering on Good Friday here with High Street Bible Church and with Redemption. And we prayed for High Street Bible Church last week, and they were granted permission to move into their building that uh, they own. So they are uh, very happy, and we are happy. Uh, many, some of you were there. I was there at the city council meeting, and uh, the, the Lord's the witness for the for the Lord was very good. I believe at that meeting, and I think they did the right thing. And and so that's just that's a praise. All right, <sighs> catch your breath. Just full disclosure, we just had like technical collapse as I'm about to come up here, and we just got it all figured out. So I'm just letting you know if you're wondering, oh, he seems a little, little, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, here we go. Well, if you have been listening to the sermons or reading for Samuel over the last a few months, you've seen the complexity of these two main characters. The two main human characters are David and Saul. And we might like to think of them as the good guy and the bad guy, but the reality is they are complex people and they are nuanced people and there are nuances to their lives that we have seen in these recent chapters. Uh, David has been the one who has been led by God's Spirit and yielded to God's Spirit. Most recently, we, most generally, we have seen that. And Saul has been the character whose uh, idols of power and popularity, we all have idols, we all have things that we are excessively attached to in the place of God. And for him, power and popularity... Those idols have led him to slaughter the priests of Israel, to go after the, the, the appointed and anointed next king, David. He has been trying to murder David. But Saul, early on in 1 Samuel, was full of God's spirit. And Saul was doing good things. And, and recently, and even in today's sermon, we're going to see David has been deceptive and has been telling skillful and sophisticated lies. Uh, skillful and sophisticated lies, David has been telling. My point here is that David and Saul are complex people. And so are you. And so am I. Human beings are complicated people. And so, we are desperate... Uh, for God's wisdom. And if you and I are going to live joy-filled, God-glorifying lives, uh, who, who would like to live that way? Say amen. Uh, we want to live joy-filled, God-glorifying lives. We, we, we need his help, and, and much of his help and wisdom comes from Scripture. Uh, this is a big and complicated book in some ways, 
It is big, and in some ways it is complicated. And that is in part because you are complicated, and I am complicated. And the wisdom that we need is not so simple and straightforward as we deal with our own idolatries, with our own sins, with our own complexity. The Bible is infallibly designed uh, to help us with this. Now, one of my favorite uh, Christian leaders who uh, some folks would call him a a psychologist, Um, I would call him, I I prefer the term soul care, someone who cares, uh, who who has expertise and and professional skill to deal with our our souls. There's a guy named David Paulison. He writes this, he says, Christian wisdom will produce the only truly constructive psychotherapy. And that word psychotherapy can sound very scientific or medical or psychiatric or something. But if you were familiar with the Greek, te- Greek New Testament, the word for soul is the word psuche or psyche, where we get this psychotherapy. What he's saying is to truly be the people that God has called us to be living joy-filled lives, lives that we need uh, Christian wisdom. He, he's not putting down uh, secular uh, science. He's not putting down psychology or psychiatry. Uh, if, a, if a psychiatrist diagnoses a patient with schizophrenia, and that psychiatrist is able to treat that patient and remove those symptoms of, of schizophrenia, that is, that is not only a good thing, that is a, a great thing. Uh, modern medicine is a beautiful thing. I get to hear testimonies every week about the good work of, of modern, modern medicine. So what I am saying right now, uh, as we approach our text of Scripture is not something to put down psychology or psychiatry or modern medicine, but to say that a person needs more than that. The person who has schizophrenia needs more than healing from schizophrenia. That person needs God's wisdom to help them live a joy-filled life, which might also involve dealing with self-doubt or depression or pride or a host of other things. What I am trying to say is that human beings are complicated people, and we have a nuanced and complex Bible because of that. One of the things we're going to discover in today's passage is that we need His grace to help us discern complicated people in our lives, and you and I are also each a complicated person, and so we need others around us to help us to discern ourselves to discern who we are. All of this by way of introduction to a simple observation that in today's chapter and in recent chapters, we have seen two very complicated people in David and Saul. So with all of that, let's turn our attention to God's Word now. Hopefully you have um, your Bible with you and you have it open to 1 Samuel chapter 29, where we're actually going to begin briefly in, in 28. So if you have your Bible or your device open, as I try to get mine open, 
Um, let's take a look and go back briefly to chapter 28 and verses 1 through 2. And as I got my Bible finally open there, let me just set the stage in case you're visiting us today or haven't heard any of these sermons recently. What's going on in 1 Samuel is David, the anointed king of Israel, the one who should be king at this point, he's on the run because the previous king, Saul, is, is gripped with this idol of power and popularity and, and wanting to hold on to this. And so David is, is, is on the run. He has been a fugitive for some time. In the beginning of chapter 28, we see where he ran to. Look at verse 1. It says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. Let me just pause here for a second at 28.1. Now, if you haven't been here in recent weeks or you just need a little refresher of what has, is, is going on here, is David has escaped to enemy territory for refuge. So it would be like an American escaping to Russia during the Cold War. He has escaped to Philistine territory, and he has been assigned an outpost on the edge of Philistine land. And Achish, the general, the commander, if you will, of the Philistine army in one particular area, says, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army, and guess who they're going to fight? Tell me. The Israelites. So you, an Israelite, not just an Israelite, the anointed king by the Spirit of God to lead Israel is, has been living in Philistine territory for some period of time and is now getting ready to go into battle with the, the commander Achish against the Philistines. Look what David says in verse 2 of 28. Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. This is David's response to the Philistine king, Achish. He replies, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. There is a close relationship between David and the Philistine leader, Achish. He's become his personal bodyguard. You don't just use anybody to do that. So why did I go back to 28? Because 28.1-2 is basically introducing what's happening in 29 in all of 28 this episode with the witch of Endor or the medium there was kind of a, 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 a brief a pause before we get to the actual battle that was introduced in 28.1-2. So let's get to our text for today now. We're back to 29 and verse 1. So it's basically reintroducing what 28 just introduced, and then we had uh, 28, now we have, have 29. It's like, hey, that's good. Mike can count. All right, here we go. 29. 29 verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. So here's David and his men at the back of the battlefield, the back of the battle troops, heading to the battlefield to fight the Israelites. The commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? After all, we are going to fight Hebrews, and we've got Hebrews at the back 
of our troops. We're not so sure about this. What about these? Again, I haven't been to West Point, but I don't think you want the people you're about to fight on your side at the back of your army. So that's what these rulers who probably went to West Point are saying. So back to verse 3. Achish replied. So here's one, one general saying to the other generals, is, not, is this not David? Who was, past tense, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel. He has already been with me for over a year. He has been living in enemy territory and has gotten close to Achish for one year. And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. So let's, let's shift gears to, from a general to, to a parent. What do you think of a parent whose child, let's say an elementary school child, uh, who has gotten trouble in school. And the parent repeatedly is saying something like, I have not found no fault in my child. I mean, this is not, my child would not have done that. I mean, I think this is kind of what we have going on here with Akish. He genuinely believes his kid, his elementary school child, his bodyguard, David, is faultless. He thinks this. He believes this. The principals called and said, hey, this is what's going on. No way. Not my child. I found no fault in him. So he's making an argument. Verse 4. But the Philistine commanders were angry with him, with Achish, and said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He was given an outpost on the very edge of Philistine territory, David and his men. Send them back there. They're not coming into battle with us. So back to the text. He must not go with us into battle, or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Remember, these are the Philistines. The Philistines know that David is t capable of taking the head of a great warrior. What was his name? Goliath. I mean, this is a pretty well-known story <laughs> then and now. And they're familiar with it. Verse 5. Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So these Philistine generals who went to West Point are quoting the number one pop music song of the top 40 of that day, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. I mean, this is a little bit of an aside here, but this is the third time in 1 Samuel that this Hebrew song is quoted. And it has left Hebrew culture and has made its way, this song, into Philistine culture. In just a moment, the worship team is going to come up and is going to lead us in this song in Hebrew. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But th this, this was a popular foreign song that the generals know about Saul's ability to, to be successful in battle and David's even greater ability to be successful in battle. I don't want to get off too far here, but 
So I, I was thinking about, um, well, I don't want to go off too off, but I'm, I'm going to go off just a little bit here. Anybody, as there a kid, like, listen to Casey Kadem in the top 40, like, music hits? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. I was born in 1969. Just, I know I look so much younger with my gray hair, but, but I, I used to listen to this. this uh, you just listen. What's going to be the, the number one song? It is very rare that a song of another culture and language becomes the number one song in a different culture and language. So I, it's funny where your sermon research takes you. So, so I looked up, uh, anybody remember Rock Me Amadeus? Rock Me Amadeus. So, so we got, the worship team is going to come. And No, I'm just kidding. So this song was number one in in uh, 1986, it was entirely in German, except for the chorus, Rock Me Amadeus. I, I, I listened to it. It's actually in German. I, I didn't even remember that. I, I, I'm just trying to show you the power of music. This song, back to our text, this Hebrew song has made its way into Philistine culture. And the Philistine generals know there was a reason for this song to be written. And it was the success of Saul and of David. And they, these generals, uh, unlike Achish, do not want David fighting with them. So Achish wants him. He trusts him. The other generals don't. Who is right in this situation? I, I've betrayed my hand, probably my thoughts and, and the scriptures. Those of you that have been listening to these sermons or reading this book, you know uh, the answer here. Uh, David is not without fault. And Achish is wrong in his assessment of David. David is a complex human being. Let's go back to the text um, on the screen, back to the text in chapter 27. It says in 27, now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. So 27 is describing David's in this outpost of Philistine territory. And what Philistine, the superpower Philistines did is they went and raided lands and stole stuff and expanded their territory. That They would be called colonists today. That's what they did. So David did that. As a Philistine, as a pseudo-Philistine, this is what he did. He went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. This part, he didn't leave a woman alive, is not a good thing. David was doing these raids, and he and his men not only killed the soldiers, but they killed the women, and they took everything. Continuing on in the text in 27, he returned to Achish. So he's doing what good Philistine commanders do. When he comes to Achish, he, he says, when Achish asks, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. or against the Negev 
of Jerahmeel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, in case you don't get that, those are the Israelites. David went out and slaughtered Israel's enemies, stole all their stuff. Then he came back, he gave the stuff to Achish, the sheep and the treasure, and he said, yeah, I went and got your enemies. That's who will where I went raiding. David lied. Achish says, I have found no fault in him. He has no idea what David has been doing. David has duped the Philistine general. So coming back to 27 on the screen. Um, he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did, and such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. If you haven't heard me say it yet, what I'm trying to say is that human beings are complicated people. And I don't want to be up on a pedestal looking down too far on David at this point. David's life was threatened. Um, I, I don't know what that's like to have a powerful king. I, I don't know what it's like to be on Putin's list of take, take this guy out. I, I don't know what that's like. David knows what that's like. And to save his life and eventually his kingship and Israel, he went into Philistine territory. So I'm not pretending that I would have handled this situation better. What my job is to serve us the word of God so that we can see what, what does this have to do with you and me. And I want to suggest that part of what today's text, and not just 29, but recent chapters have for us is that we desperately need God's grace to know one another and to know to, to know one another and to know ourselves because we are complex people. And if we're really honest, we're, we have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. You have a long way to go just in understanding yourself, who you are, why you sin or are tempted in certain ways, why you have anxiety in this situation, why you have fears in this situation. And we need help desperately. Counterintuitively, sometimes those who know someone least know him best. In this situation, the person who knows David the best, Achish, does not have a clue who David is. The generals who are far away, who don't know David personally, the Philistine generals, they know who David is. This is something that the reader of this text should see. So there's this debate going on, coming back to our passage, between Achish and the other generals. Achish has made his play that my child should not get any detention. He should come with us on the field trip. He has done nothing wrong. Verse 
6. The others say, no, that he can't come. So let's come back to our text. We're at verse 6. So Achish called David and said to him, as surely as the Lord lives. Now this is interesting. We have a Philistine general using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Not sure if he's gotten to know David and heard about his God and has come to faith, or if he, like most Philistines, he's just a polytheist and he just wants to name every God. Um, as he says something serious and he's naming, happened to name this God, even though he could have named Dagon or named some other God. I, but this is interesting that Achish is using not a generic word for God, but the name for God that refers specifically to the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the monotheistic God, the one God. So back to our text, verse 6. As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until now, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Turn back and go in peace. Do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. So David gets the, the, here's the decision. Um, And and David's response, verse 8. But what have I done? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? This is complicated. (laughs) What is going on here? Is David really begging to go and kill Israelites? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, In fact, we might say from a literary perspective, the uh, the Bible is both scripture and literature. From a literary perspective, there's a lot going on in this chapter. I'm not going to go into it all, but we begin, we begin at Jezreel, we end at Jezreel. There's a lot in this unit, 29 through 11. What we have going on here, I think, is purposeful ambiguity, both from a literary perspective and from a historical perspective with what David is doing. David is a sophisticated, complex person. And I don't think my lord the king, I think Achish understood my lord the king to refer to him, Right? That's what he understood this to be. Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord and King Achish? Why can't I go and fight against the Israelites? I have turned. I think that's what David was intending Achish to understand. But David's Lord and King is not Achish. David's Lord and King is not Saul. David's Lord and King is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And I think the careful reader of Scripture here is to see this purposeful ambiguity, or to use AP literature language, a double entendre. Ambiguity of meaning arising from language that lends itself to more than one interpretation. And the interpretation in this complex scenario is David's Lord and King, from the reader's perspective, from my perspective and your perspective, David's Lord and King is the covenant-keeping God of Israel And what is going to happen here if this battle were to actually take place? This is something that the reader would be thinking about. Let's finish up 9 through 11, today's text. Let's finish up the text, a little bit more sermon, but finish up the passage. So Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes 
as an angel of God. <laughs> uh, school principals uh, deal with parents who see their, parent, their children this way. An angel of God. Yeah, hasn't been an angel in the hallways here at school. But this is how Achish sees David. I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said, he must not go up with us into battle. Verse 10, now get up early along with your master's servants who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. You got to leave, you and your men. Verse 11, so David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So what does this have to do with my life and with your life? We need discernment to genuinely know people and to be known by people. We need discernment and time and friendship to get to know one another so that we can become the joy-filled people who live to glorify God and we have trouble knowing ourselves and knowing others. And as we think about this text, uh, there, there's someone who's been missing in David's life. His, his close friend, what was his name? Jonathan. Jonathan's missing. Jonathan knows David. The, the distant commanders of, Philist, of the Philistine territories these commanders, they know David, even though they don't know David. Achish doesn't know David. And the reader, I think, comes to the conclusion, I'm not sure that David knows David. I'm not sure that David knows David. And David is a lot like you and me. If we had, if you had, if you or I had an omniscient narrator describing your life, and we're reading about it, we would see how complicated you are. You would see how complicated I am. You would see how conflicted I am, and you are. What I'm trying to say, church, is that we need other people that are close to us, who know us, and we need to be involved in the lives of other people, that we are close to them, and we know them. It's hard to know ourselves. Proverbs 16, 28 says, A perverse man spreads strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. I put this proverb on the screen for us today because of the last phrase there, intimate friends. The assumption here is that you have intimate friends, that you have a Jonathan and David, that you have a Ruth and Naomi. And those relationships are important because we're complicated. The Bible's complicated. How do we know what to do, how to live, how to, how, how to, uh, how to move forward with my, my views of myself? One moment I, I think of myself as, as, as so great, and another minute I, I, I'm thinking of myself as, as the worst person and, and so inadequate and so lame. We need f- close, intimate friends to help us, to know ourselves, and we need to help to get to know them and to apply the gospel and God's word to each other's lives, and we need to protect that. That's what this proverb is about. A perverse man spreads strife and slander. The enemy, the evil one, wants to break apart intimate, close Christian relationships and fellowship. 
The enemy wants to break apart David's and Jonathan's and those kinds of relationships. Discernment to genuinely know people and be known is one of the things that we are desperate for God's grace for. I've referred to this verse several times in the last few weeks and months in sermons. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. We need others around us who love us, who do truth-telling to us, who encourage us that we're forgiven, who encourage us that, that we're going to be okay, that we're not crazy, that we can make it, that God is sufficient. David needs this in his life. The reader can see that he is missing Jonathan in the way he is handling himself in Philistine territory. He has succeeded in preserving his life. He has succeeded, if we want to think of David as a spy, he has succeeded in duping Achish. He's become his bodyguard. David has not been living a life of integrity. He has not been living out the commandments of God. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It is a lifelong process to get to know ourselves, to get to know one another. And God has designed us to do this in community. And we need at least one or two, a brother if you're a man, sister if you're a woman, who can, who can come alongside you and help you with your desperately sick heart. My heart and your heart and David's heart and Saul's hearts are desperately sick and need help. The, the human heart, our soul, needs care. Discernment to genuinely know people and be known. This is one of the implications of today's text. A second implication is discernment to trust his providence, bitter or sweet. This is a major theme in, in 29, 1 through 11. I mean, there has been a lot of bitter providence in David's life. He's living on the outskirts of Philistine territory. He's the anointed king of Israel. He's been slaughtering enemies of Israel and clandestinely bringing the booty, bringing the wealth and giving it to Achish as though it's coming from Israel. This, this, is, this is tough. I mean, the providence of God, the, 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 what God has allowed to happen in David's life has been really difficult. And that's true in a lot of our lives as well. Some of you, I, I just heard of, I can't, some of you have had very difficult things happen in your life that God has allowed. They're bitter, His providence. We have to trust Him even when His providence is bitter. Why, God, did you allow this? Why did David have to flee there? But we also see sweet providence in today's passage. Um, one commentator writes this, The very same Philistines who will finally dispose of Saul, spoiler warning if you haven't read 1 Samuel, the, the very same Philistines who will finally dispose of Saul in chapter 31 are the ones who unwittingly rescue David. Now I haven't alluded to it, but David has been rescued from potentially facing either the option of battling his own people if he were to maintain his spy tactic, 
or reversing course and very likely being wiped out by the Philistines, who are the superpower, who have, who have uh, more sophisticated airplanes and more sophisticated missiles. They are going to take David out if he goes to the other side. In God's providence, it's the generals who were against David that rescued David from this situation. The careful reader of 1 Samuel 29 is to observe that and recognize that God is to be trusted whether his providence is bitter or whether it's sweet. In God's providence, David is thus spared the occasion to shed Israelite blood. God works all things for good. He doesn't work them the way, very often, the way that you or I would like, but he works them for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't only work them to people who are actually angels. David was not an angel. Achish thought he was so pleasing in his eyes that he was an angel of God. The reader knows from this omniscient author of 1 Samuel that David is very far from being an angel. And yet God is with him. And that should be comforting to you and me. Because I am no angel, and you are no angel, and God says, I am with you nonetheless. And he is with David. So we need God's grace to have discernment to genuinely know people and be known by them because we're complicated. We need discernment to trust his providence because we feel like giving up when, when God allows us as the anointed king to be moved to the end of Philistine territory and have to do what David has been doing for some considerable time. Final point this morning. We need discernment to trust Christ for battles, both physical and spiritual. David, at the end of the day, I see him as someone who is trusting God. And I see the purposeful ambiguity or the double entendre at the end of verse 8 as an understanding to the reader that David's Lord and King is not Saul. That's who the generals against David think is his Lord and King. It's not Achish. That's who Achish thinks is his Lord and King. His Lord and King is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he will see David through battles, both physical and spiritual. And our God is alive and well today. He rose on the third day. The Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding on our behalf. I want to close today by reading probably the most familiar words that David ever wrote from Psalm 23. I've alluded to it several times over the last few months. I've alluded to verse 5. Just listen to it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's very likely that the background for that verse is what happened with Abigail. And David, surrounded by enemies, Nabal, Saul, the Philistines, that David is able to have a feast. Because his God is so strong, because my God and your God is so strong that you can have a feast and celebrate and enjoy food and drink. Even though enemies are all around you, that's how strong our God is. That's verse 5. 
that doesn't really have anything to do with our text today. I just love that, so I just went there. So verse 1 of Psalm 23 has to do with our text today. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David, as a complex human being, has maintained Yahweh as his shepherd. That's what that purposeful ambiguity is saying. And I shall not want. In other words, God will provide what I need in life. This is the relationship that David has with God and the kind of relationship that you and I can have with God as well. It doesn't mean that he gives us what we want. It means that he will supply our needs. And if, if the Lord Jesus, if Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, is my shepherd, he will provide what Mike needs. Fill in the blank, your name. He will provide what you need. What do you need? You don't need a 401k. You don't need a 20-acre property and a new home. You don't need your children to make more money than you did. These are not needs. You don't need to hang on to power like Saul wants to. We need, according to 1 Timothy 6, food, clothing, shelter. If you read 1 Timothy 6. Those are the material needs that we have. We need God. We need a community. We need friends. We need close friends. And God promises us those things. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Whether I find myself in a season of bitter providence, I'm living on the edge of Philistine territory, or whether... I'm eating a feast, a great meal with enemies around me because God is so great and powerful. Either way, God provides for our needs. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. We need each other. We need friends who know us well because we're complicated people like David and Saul. I pray that you would help us to invest in relationships. I pray that you would help us, those of us who have a David and Jonathan, a Ruth and Naomi kind of relationship, to maintain those relationships, to fight for those relationships. I pray for those that don't have those relationships, that we would pray for them, that we would go out of our comfort zones, that we would invite people to coffee or our home or be part of a small group, or whatever it looks like to find that close, intimate friendship that David and Jonathan had, and that David had with the Lord, his king, his sovereign. And he provides for David's needs. And David writes of this in Psalm 23 and teaches us how to pray rightly, that we would have no needs. Lord, might that be true of us, that we might think biblically, not like Americans, but like Christians, about what we need, and that we would live joy-filled lives to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.